Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 166, One Down, Two to Go. Last time, by the spring of 1944, with the fortunes of war having turned against Nazi Germany, cracks began to appear, in all places, within the supposed ultra-loyal SS. Even the fanatical Sepp Dietrich, once a chauffeur of Hitler's, now the commander of the SS Liebstandarte Adolf Hitler, had said, it is impossible to beat the Russians, which seemed true enough at this point. So what was Himmler to do? After all, he had loftier goals than just commanding the forces that kept Europe under Hitler's heel. For if the Third Reich was to fall apart, was it still not possible for Himmler to rule over whatever was left of Germany? Yet he had to know that others were probably thinking the same thing. As for Stalin, the architect of Germany's misery, he had learned much of military tactics and overall strategy since June 22, 1941. And though he had more men than the invaders, it was still prudent to focus his means to make a real difference in one section before moving on to the next. And the Germans had helped with this by surrounding Leningrad to the north and then holding a position just to its east. That is, standing firm versus continued battering against the Soviet defenses in the north. But now that Moscow had pushed the invaders back to the Ukraine in the south, it was now time to straighten out the eastern front further north. Although the war front around Leningrad had been relatively quiet since September 8, 1941, when the encirclement of the city had been completed, it certainly wasn't due to German inactivity. They had, even before that date, launched several attacks to take and destroy Russia's largest city, after Moscow. The first attack towards Leningrad was in late July of 1941, by Army Group North, but it was halted about 100 kilometers, or 62 miles, south of the city. Yet, as this attack came to an end, the Soviets found themselves, however, unable to resist the Finns, who were seeking revenge and a return of their stolen territory during the Winter War. They were attacking from the north. To be sure, the Germans, bogged down, implored the Finns to come even further south. But besides straightening out their lines, for defensive reasons, the Finns simply built up their fortifications, happy to have only taken back what they had lost. Still, on September 8, 1941, Leningrad was encircled, as the Finns were to the north, while the Germans reached the southern shores of Lake Ladoga, to the east of the city. By mid-September, the Germans gave it another go, but were stopped 10 kilometers, or 6.2 miles, from the city. Frustrated, but thinking he had found a better way to proceed, Hitler ordered the transfer of the 4th Panzer Group from Army Group North, to lend it to Army Group Center for the big push to Moscow. With this done, Berlin was determined that Leningrad would starve to death. Two birds, one stone. And so, for its, however limited, participation, Great Britain declared war on Russia's new enemy, Finland. To be fair, there is still much controversy about Finland's part in the Leningrad siege 
But the bottom line is this. They continually ignored Berlin's requests to bombard and push further south. Yet, their limited operations did help the Germans in closing off the city, which, by the end of the war, saw the deaths of between 600,000 and 800,000 civilians. The following year, 1942, the area around Leningrad was a slugfest of operations and counteroffensives that accomplished little besides killing large amounts of people on both sides, which simultaneously checked the goals of the defenders and invaders. Having paid such a high price in blood in 1942, the Russian payoff came the following year. Though German bombardment was increased for the entire year of 1943, Operation Iskra in January was able to open a land corridor along the southern coast of Lake Ladoga, which lifted the blockade. Yet for the next few months, with the Russians trying to add on to this success by actually removing the Germans from around the city, that attempt was called off by April 1st after losing too many Soviet troops. But they were replaceable. The lost German soldiers and their allies were not. Only in January of 1944, with the Soviets launching in overwhelming numbers, attacks on the Germans south of Leningrad, at Novgorod, at Volkov, to the east of the city, at Starea, further south of Leningrad, while the Baltic fleet contributed its air arm in harassing the invaders, did the Germans backpedal to the west and to the south. As is common during a large retreat, Someone must stay behind to engage the pursuers so the majority of troops can make good their escape. That unenviable job was left to Felix Steiner's 3rd SS Germanic Panzer Corps. Steiner had also been given the 9th and 10th Luftwaffe Field Divisions, ostensibly to add punching power. But these less motivated, less equipped, and less trained men were easily pushed back by the advancing Russians. In the Germans' departing wake, they left behind some 3,200 ruined residential buildings, 9,000 burned wooden homes, and 840 gutted factories. The Russians had liberated Leningrad, but it was not going to be livable for many months to come. So Steiner, keeping faith with his own men, sent the Armored Reconnaissance Battalion of the 11th SS Panzer Grenadier Division, Norland, which was manned by Swedish volunteers, to hold the city of Gubanensi, just west of Leningrad, near the end of January. Its defense would help shield the closest units of the retreating Army Group North. On January 25th, the anti-tank platoon of the Reconnaissance Battalion's 5th Company had pushed back the first Soviet armored units to approach. So the next day, the Soviets tried again, this time with a much larger group of tanks. Just beyond a hill near Gubanensi, to the city's east, some 70 Soviet heavy tanks approached. Using the height, they were not within view of the SS battalion until much too close for comfort. Still, the four 7.5-centimeter anti-tank guns were ordered to open fire. As the tanks were in close proximity to each other for mutual support, the German shells had little trouble 
making contact. Then one of the gun crews noticed that one particular enemy tank had more antennas sticking out of it than the others. Obviously, the leading tank. Sure enough, when it was hit, the other tanks reacted like bees without a queen. They started zooming around in all directions, much like the Americans would find when fighting the Japanese after an officer was taken out. Still, the Soviet tanks did not leave the area, as they had not been ordered to do so. So when Untersturmfuhrer Langendorf showed up, he told the gunners to keep firing. By the time the enemy tanks did retreat back over the hill, there were 45 wrecked holes left behind. With the Soviets in this area temporarily stymied, the Germans pulled back to the Narva River in good order. The river was used as a border between the Soviet Union and Estonia. This new line went from the Baltic Sea to Lake Pipus, some 30 miles in length. Along its line, protected by the 3rd SS Panzer Corps, was the city of Navra itself, and its medieval castle. But now that, finally, Leningrad was free, Stalin was not about to let up. In February, the Soviet units opposite the Narva line were ordered to find weak points across the river. Indeed, during February, those few weak points were located and bridgeheads established on the German side. So, the second half of February and March was spent by the Germans eliminating those potential trouble spots. Steiner spent that time traveling up and down the line, checking on his men and placing troops from the two infantry corps that he had recently received from the Wehrmacht in the weaker points. Even better, the Estonian 20th SS Waffen Grenadier Division showed up on February 20th and was thrown right into the thick of the fighting along the river. The Estonians' objective was to clear out the Soviets near Siversti, just above Narva itself. Problem was, the enemy had quickly come in and set up minefields and machine gun positions, and these were covered by artillery from the far side of the river. Still, the Estonians charged in, longing to kill Soviets and liberate their country. Initially, the 1st Battalion went in, navigating the minefield. They made it to the other side, just in front of the enemy trenches. But by then, most of the Estonian officers were dead. Still, the men engaged the dug-in enemy units while suffering from artillery attacks from across the river. And things were going relatively well until the Estonians began to run low on ammunition. Given their situation, to do anything than continuing to engage would spell their doom. Unterschaffuhrer Harold Nagisix ordered that sleds be used to haul ammunition and grenades over the minefield past their dead colleagues to his countrymen. This worked and thus resupplied the 1st Battalion charged forward, reaching the trenches. Now that the close-by Soviets were occupied, a wider attack was launched by the Germans. This was the beginning of the end of this particular Soviet bridgehead, which would be gone by March 6th. Yet this wasn't the only victory for the SS along the line. Soviet artillery and bomber raids were quickly turning the city of Narva into piles of rubble. Still, the SS soldiers would not be driven out. 
Further, men were being placed among the rubble, strengthening their defensive lines. Added to this were the Panthers of Nordland's Panzer Battalion and the Tiger Tanks of the 502nd Heavy Tank Battalion. Even more good news for the 3rd SS Panzer Corps, although they had lost some 7,500 men thus far, one, they still held the line, and two, some 1,300 men from the assumed destroyed 9th and 10th Luftwaffe Field Divisions had survived being overrun to rejoin the line. The month of March ended with the Soviets gaining nothing here, but having to deal with their dead and their wounded. This situation for Army Detachment Narwa, as this local force was being called, went unchanged in April and May, and the men appreciated the rest and a chance to strengthen their defenses further. And June was equally quiet, that is, along this line. But word reached the men of Narva that the Soviets had stopped here to focus on spots in Finland and Belarusia, between the Ukraine and Baltic states, which meant, with those areas cleaned up, the Soviets would soon revisit here with more men. So SS Commander Steiner had a talk with the Narva commander, General Friesner. Not wanting to get outflanked to their south, they agreed to pull back some 20 kilometers west to the Tannenberg line. The three hills there would help the defenders, it was hoped. July was spent getting ready to retreat. Yet even this latest retreat would buy the now-defending Germans and their allies nothing. For below them, Army Group Center was about to be practically wiped out. In the spring of 1944, the Stavka, the Soviet High Command, decided to go after Army Group Center. Its hope was that the enemy's formation would be completely destroyed. To bring low Army Group Center would mean the other two Army Groups, North and South, would be too far apart to support each other. Thus, the Soviet drive west would be sped up. Yes, Soviet Russia was winning the war in the east, but it had not been for many years, and Western Russia had paid a terrible price for this. For Stalin, the war in the East could not be over fast enough. Step one, the Soviets began to amass troops, tanks, and guns in front of Army Group Center, but as quietly as possible. Next, dummy troop concentrations were positioned just across and to the south of Army Group Center, so that the most northern section of Army Group South believed they were about to be hit with a massive counterattack, but not Army Group Center. So when Operation Progression began, the massive attack on Army Group Center, the Germans there believed that they were facing only 40% of the enemy infantry really before them, and somewhere between 400 and 1,800 tanks. The truth was closer to some 4,000 to 5,000 tanks. Further, as the Germans had fallen for this military deception, they had already sent a third of Armored Group Center's artillery, half of its tank destroyers, and 88% of its tanks to Army Group South. Before the Russians attacked, 
on June 23, 1944, and this line of attack would go from southern Estonia to northern Romania, they had replaced the lost 200,000 men in front of Army Group Center. Next, they moved in seven additional armies and 11 aviation corps. When they came, the German 4th Army, which had been shielding Minsk, was bypassed and surrounded. The same thing happened to the 3rd Panzer Army at Vitebsk, to the northeast of Minsk, and the same thing happened to the 9th Army at Bobrusk. These trapped formations can be found in these circled locations on this cover episode. When all was said and done, the Russians had destroyed 28 out of the 34 German divisions of Army Group Center, and they had reached Warsaw. The German line here had been shattered, with the loss of 450,000 troops, killed, wounded, or missing. The operation of the Russians ended on August 19th. This was the wider context as the SS troops pulled back in the north to the Tannenberg line. And though the overall picture was bleak, the SS men continued to fight bravely and with great skill. The two Latvian SS divisions, now fighting for their homeland, had set up their defensive position, knowing the Soviets would charge right at them. Indeed, that's what they had done all of 1944. But by this time, knowing how the Soviets would attack, the SS men cut down the trees before them, except they left the bottom foot of the trunk, which was hidden by tall grass. Then, running wires from trunk to trunk, as the Soviets attacked, they would trip and fall, only then to be lit into by German guns and grenades. Sure enough, though the Latvians had been whittled down during the first half of 1944, they got back some of their own that late summer day. Of course, this was the equivalent of punching a man in the stomach, only to have his friends behind him shoot you with a bazooka. But it was the best that could be done. More men were sent to help the Narva detachment, but again, these were buckets trying to hold back an ocean. On July 25th, the Narva was ordered back to the Tannenberg line, but as the Soviets intercepted this message, they pressed their attack in the north, hoping to catch the Germans and their allies trying to retreat, but also trying to cover their rear at the same time. This worked as the Dutch regiment was cut off, surrounded, and all but wiped out the next day. Now, it was a race. The SS units within the wider German formation were trying to reach and then secure several small hills along the Tannenberg line, while the Russians threw in everything they had locally to get at the enemy before they could set themselves up on those hills. This is where the 3rd SS Panzer Corps had its most intense fighting of the entire war. Fortunately, as July was about to end, a battalion from the Flanders Brigade showed up and was thrown into the mix. As the Flemish men were fresh, they were put on Orphanage Hill and told to hold. If they could, the positions around them would be secured. But within days, one anti-tank company was wiped out all but one man, and he had already proven himself worthy of SS standards, and he was about to do so again. When the last of his company had been killed, 
he himself had been wounded, he continued to fire his gun alone, and he took out eight more enemy tanks, which gave the Soviets in front of him pause, but just for a moment. As the fighting continued for the small hills, one by one, the Soviets captured them, though losing many men in the process. On July 29th, the Germans and their allies were pushed back to the last height, Tower Hill. They either held here or would, again, be cut up and cut down as they retreated to the west. Knowing this, Steiner threw in his last reserves, his last seven tanks from Nordland's Panzer Battalion. Probably thinking the Germans were out of tanks in this area, the Soviets were caught unawares as the last seven tanks moved in on them. Not having an immediate answer, the Russians retreated, which allowed the Estonian troops to retake Grenadier Hill. Even better, the Russians stopped attacking, but only to bring up more of their own tanks and large guns. But this took time. The Russians had transferred these items, thinking they were not needed here, so the Estonians and Germans enjoyed the rest. Not that their impressive six-month-long defense of the Estonian border mattered. The Soviet tanks and large guns that were missing from this area were being used a bit to their south. As such, with Army Group Center gone, the Soviets were about to reach Latvia, the middle of the Baltic states, which would cut off all Axis forces in Estonia. Their bravery had been for naught. Even worse, the Finns, on September 4th, agreed to a ceasefire with Soviet Russia. Now the Russians, again, had access to the Baltic Sea. As they had been building up their navy as well, it was only a matter of time before Soviet troops were put aboard vessels and carried past the German defensive line in the north. There was only one option open to the Narva detachment at this point as it clearly would not be making a difference in the war, and to keep standing in between the enemy and Berlin was equal to a death sentence, the unit marched through Estonia into Latvia and deposited itself in the country's northwest corner, the Korlin Peninsula. And many of these men would stay here until the end of the war. But more on this later. As for the 3rd SS Panzer Corps, well, what was left of them, they would be embarked on vessels in January of 1945 and taken to Germany. Either way, the Estonians and Latvians, once again, found themselves and their countries in the hands of the Russians, of Stalin.